In this episode of Read Me a Story, we're learning more about Clara and Ned's adventures in the book Precious Time by Erica James. Their travelling has been put on hold again as Clara has the flu. They had gone back to Mermaid House to return Val's diaries and now Clara is sleeping off her symptoms whilst Gabriel looks after Ned. Meanwhile, Casper has been summoned to Rosewood Manor to visit his twin sister Damson and Jonah has offered to get some things for Clara from Winnie the campervan. But Clara has forgotten the guilty reason why she came back to Mermaid House and the evidence is in Winnie. Chapter 47 Casper's day wasn't going as smoothly as he had wanted it to. A snarl up on the motorway had added an extra hour and a half to his journey and now it was taking him forever to find Rosewood Manor. He'd gone round in circles, doubling back on himself again and again along roads that cleaved through windswept moors and all looked the same. It was a wild, inhospitable place of craggy bleakness with few houses and in places it reminded him of Hollowedge Moor. He'd left Manchester in the sun earlier that morning, but up here, in this godforsaken land where the rain was pouring and the wind gusting, it wasn't difficult to picture the tribes of marauding savages from the north that the Romans had been so keen to keep out by building Hadrian's Wall. Whatever had possessed Damson to settle here? Eventually he stopped to risk lunch at a pub where the copper-topped tables were sticky with beer and scarred with cigarette burns. The padded stalls were so filthy he thought twice about sitting down. His order was taken by a charmless old hag who was more interested in watching the widescreen television hanging from the wall at the far end of the overheated room than serving anyone. There were a few other punters, a wizened man with his nose dipping into his pint and a group of youths lolling around a pool table. He planned to stay just long enough to satisfy his growling stomach and to ask the whereabouts of Rosewood Manor Healing Centre. Nobody had heard of it, but he was informed that Blydale Village wasn't a village as such. Nothing more than a sprawling place that's got above itself, the hag said, with a disapproving sniff when he handed her over a ten-pound note for a plate of artificially pink microwave gammon steak and a glass of unspeakably rough brandy. Just because the Romans had departed eons ago, it didn't mean the natives had gone soft on tribalism, Casper observed, as he slipped back into the refined comfort of his Maserati. He knew the sensible thing to do was phone Rosewood Manor and ask for directions, but he'd be down before he was reduced to doing that. Getting that nerdy wimp Roland Hall on the phone and asking him for help was out of the question. He drove on determinedly back towards Blydale. Ten minutes later, luck shone on him when he saw the remains of a wooden sign he hadn't noticed before, although he had driven up and down this stretch of road several times. He stopped the car, got out, and with the rain pelting down on him, poked around in the long, sodden grass with his foot. Flipping the rotten piece of wood over, he saw the words Rosewood Manor Healing Centre, carved in a pretentiously curlicued script. Hallelujah! Now, at long last, he was getting somewhere. Back in the car, he took the next left, as the sign had originally indicated. The road dipped and narrowed, twisted and climbed, and all but disappeared up its own axis, before it brought him to the brow of a hill and a T-junction. 
There were no helpful signs, but in the distance, submerged in the misty gloom of a verdant coniferous plantation, he saw a large house. He drove on hopefully. At the approach to the house, a metal gate barred his way. Attached to it was a sign that read Private Property and Keep Out in red. A brick-built postbox stood to the left of the gate, but there was nothing other than a strong feeling in his guts to suggest that this was where he would find Damson. He made a lightning dash to the gate, swung it open, then dived back into the car. Driving on, he left the gate swinging in the wind. The house was as he had visualised it, Victorian and unrelentingly grim. It had probably been used as a school or even a remand home at some time. It had that institutionalised look about it. Ugly and overextended, it was a solid mass of brickwork with staring windows. With a shudder of revulsion, Casper thought of the elegant flat in Bath Damson had given up in favour of this remote, heartless monstrosity. What had she been thinking of when she came here this time last year? He parked the car as near to the front door as he could, bolted across the gravel towards the shelter offered by the porch and yanked on the metal bell pull. Getting no response, he thumped on the door loudly and waited. Was it his imagination, or could he detect the whiff of institutional cabbage? Predictably, it was some time before someone eventually deigned to open the door. A scrawny, barefooted individual with a shiny bald head stood before Casper, placed his palms together and bowed from the middle. Welcome to Rosewood Manor Healing Centre. My name is Jed. How may I help you? His gormless face was insufferably beautific and made Casper want to ram a fist into it. Oh, save it for someone who cares. I've had the devil of a day, so don't waste any more of my time. I'm Downson's brother, so take me to your leader and then do me the kindness of scarpering. Not a flicker passed across the man's face. He bowed again, stepped aside to let Casper in, then shut the door silently. Suddenly, Casper felt uneasy as though he had entered a strange, eerie world and the only escape route had been closed off. He was shown into a large room that had probably been built as an impressive drawing room for some Victorian industrialist. A hundred years on, it was cold and reminded of Casper of Mermaid House, except it was shabbier and a lot less inviting. A circle of assorted chairs dominated the oblong space. The floor was bare and the walls had been painted an insipid shade of mint green, with the intricately carved cornice and ceiling rows picked out in a darker green. And where, presumably, pictures and mirrors had once adorned the walls, there were now rows of pinboards. While he waited, he read some of the notices. The first was full of silly mantras. Make the renewal of your soul your priority. A hardened heart is an impoverished heart. Know thyself and be at peace. Self-esteem comes from confronting your insecurities. It was nothing but the crazy psychobabble that every New Age hippie traded in these days, he thought. The next board revealed a series of rotors. There seemed to be one for almost every mundane domestic activity. Cooking, cleaning, laundry, shopping, even scrubbing out the toilets. He noted that Damson's name was absent from any of the lists. A separate piece of paper showed another range of activities, from cheese-making and beekeeping to the construction of wooden toys and hammocks. Mr Liberty, 
He turned, yes. Casper recognised good quality clothes when he saw them, and striding across the room, his hand outstretched, was a man of about his own age and height, who clearly took pride in his appearance. He was wearing cream chinos and a Ralph Lauren striped shirt, with a navy blue cashmere sweater draped around his shoulders. A gold watch hung loosely from one of his wrists. With mounting satisfaction, Casper knew that he was face to face with the devious brain behind this whole scam. And you are? Roland Hall, it's good to meet you at last. Hiding his surprise, Casper ignored the outstretched hand and gritted his teeth. It was time to get down to business. Damson, where is she? Yes, of course, I quite understand your eagerness to see her, but perhaps a drink first. How was your journey? The weather must have slowed you considerably. The fraudulent act of smooth charm and slickly offered hospitality incensed Casper. My sister's welfare is the only reason I'm here, so let's dispense with the small talk. The man's expression remained impassive. As you wish, but I feel it only right that I should warn you that your sister... Casper held up a hand, jabbed a finger at the man's face. I'm not interested in what you have to say about Damson. Whatever comes out of your mouth is guaranteed to be 100% garbage. The half-baked dropouts you are used to dealing with might be taken in by your cool, calm and collected manner. But I'm not. I know a man on the take when I see one. He was almost disappointed that Hall's response was restricted to a non-committal nod. I'll take you upstairs, was all he said. There was something annoyingly self-possessed about the man. He led the way out to the entrance hall where, at the foot of the stairs, a small group had gathered. There looked to be equal numbers of men and women, and they all turned and smiled when they saw Hall advancing towards them. Casper detected the look of naked lust in some of the women's faces as they watched their leader climb the stairs. So it wasn't just greed for money that had brought him here. It was the pumping up of his gigantic ego, too. They came to a room at the furthest end of a long, thin corridor, and a door that had had many layers of paint added to it over the years. It was chipped in places, particularly around the handle. Hall knocked softly. Damson, it's me, Roland. I've brought someone to see you. So the weasel hadn't even bothered to tell her he was coming. As they entered the room, it was impossible to know who was more shocked. Damson, at the sight of Casper, or Casper because he couldn't believe the devastating change in his sister. Shock rendered him immobile. He stood staring at the woman sitting in the bay window. For a moment, he almost convinced himself that this was some cheap trick on Hall's part. Where's my sister? he wanted to shout. What have you done with her? Who is this bone-thin woman with hollow cheeks and gruesomely short hair? But the words that came out were, My God, Damson, what have these charlatans done to you? Then he was across the room, kneeling on the floor in front of her, clasping her cold hands in his. Casper wasn't aware of Hall leaving them, but when he raised his eyes to Damson's pale face, he saw that the door was shut and they were alone. Oh, darling Casper, why have you come? I didn't want you to see me like this. She brushed the hair back from his forehead and kissed him tenderly. Still holding her hands, which had no strength in them, he moved to sit in the chair beside her. I don't understand what's going on, Damson. I got a call saying you were ill, that I ought to come and see you. Not for one second did I think it was anything serious. 
That smug crook Hall should have said something. Why didn't you ring me yourself? She sighed. It's complicated. Please don't fob me off. Give me the truth. Do that much for me. Tell me what's wrong. I mean, for God's sake, you're you're in a wheelchair. Have you been in an accident? She shook her head. No accident, Casper. Truth is, I'm dying. The shock of her words winded him and he gasped. She reached out and placed her hand on his forearm. Too much honesty hurts, doesn't it, darling? But, but you can't be. Not you. Anyone but you. His head spun and a rushing sound filled his ears. Oh, Casper, didn't you know? It happens to the best of us. And who knows, this might be something I get right. He simply couldn't accept what he was hearing. She was being much too cavalier and flippant. He stood up, towered over her frail body, spread his arms in an accusing gesture. It's this place. They've done something to you. If I get you away, you'll be well again. You're probably not eating properly. You could be anorexic. Please sit down and please calm down, Casper. This is just why I didn't want you to see me. Don't you think I would know if I was anorexic? No, my darling, I have ovarian cancer and I'm in the final stages. We're talking a tumour as big as a fist. Conservatively, I have weeks to live rather than months, though personally, I think it might be less. He collapsed onto the chair. No, this can't be happening. Damson, you have to listen to me. You have to fight this. I don't care what you've been brainwashed into believing. No, it's you who has to listen. I've been ill for some time. In fact, that's why I came here. I met Roland in Bath at a party a month after I was diagnosed with cancer. He told me about Rosewood Manor, which he'd just started up, and the more he told me about it, the more I thought it would be the ideal place for me to live out my remaining days. I needed somewhere to rest, somewhere I could resolve things, and before you say anything else about Roland, he didn't know I was ill when we met. I kept it from him, from everyone. She paused to take a small, shallow breath. You see, Casper, I knew I wouldn't have the courage to cope with all that chemotherapy. The nausea, the tiredness. Nor did I want to be constantly in and out of hospital, treated like an experiment. So I decided to be a coward and let nature take its course. It's for the best. Clutching at straws and with his voice cracking, Casper said, So if you haven't tried conventional medicine... How how do you know it won't work for you now? She smiled at him wanly. Roland made me see a doctor earlier this year when he realised that something was wrong, that I was in pain and had been hiding it from him. After agreeing to see the local man, I saw several specialists who all said the same, that the cancer was so advanced nothing could be done. In a way, I was glad. It meant that I was finally in control of something. You know how flighty and out of control I've always been. She gave a little laugh with a brittle, hollow ring. To his horror, tears filled Casper's eyes, and he knew real despair. But Damson, you're not in control. The cancer is. It's it's killing you, and I can't bear it. Once again, he was on his knees, and with his head in her lap, he began to cry. Oh, God in heaven, he was losing the only person who had ever meant anything to him. Damson was the only person he had truly loved.
Chapter 48 Seldom did Gabriel consciously keep track of the days, but since Clara had been struck down with flu, he was unusually aware of them. It was now Saturday, and this was her third day of being confined to quarters. Each morning when he looked in on her, he willed her to feel better, but she seemed to be withering before his eyes. Seeing her so incapacitated made him realise that she wasn't invincible after all, and that having her here at Mermaid House, where he could look after her, he was repaying a little of her kindness. He was glad, though, that he had Jonah to share the load, and in more ways than one. Since Thursday night, when he and Jonah had talked, really talked, he had come to know the truth of Clara's words. Jonah was indeed a gift from Anastasia, and his forgiveness had been instant. To thank Clara for what she had instigated, Gabriel would go to any lengths. He had told her as much this morning, when he and Ned had taken up her breakfast on a tray the lad had decorated with one of his drawings and some flowers picked from the garden. At Jonah's insistence, both Gabriel and Ned were under orders to stay at the foot of her bed, as if her germs were too stupid to travel that far. And from there, Gabriel had thanked her for everything she had done and told her that if there was anything she needed, she only had to ask. The sound of laughter broke into his thoughts and he turned to look out of the library window. Ned and Jonah were in the garden playing football. The little boy was chasing Jonah, who was heading for a pair of makeshift goalposts, two upturned flower pots. Suddenly they caught sight of him and waved. Gabriel waved back, then pointed at his watch, indicating that it was time for lunch. And time was something he had wasted too much of since his retirement and Val's death. He had wantonly frittered it away. Well, not now. What he had left, he would make good use of. What had Clara said when she'd agreed to sort out Mermaid House? Oh yes, I'll give you one week of my precious time, Mr Liberty. She was right, time was precious, and he had squandered so much on living in the past. He had allowed himself to feed off his grief and turn it into a destructive force that had nearly cost him everything. But to make things completely right, there was something else he had to do. He was reconciled with Jonah, and now he had to do the same with Casper and Damson. When were you going to tell me, Damson? The question had been on Casper's lips since yesterday afternoon, when his sister had told him she was dying. But until now, he hadn't had the nerve to ask it. They were lying together on her bed. Her head turned towards him and the afternoon sunshine streaming through the windows. It was years since they had lain like this, although as children they had done it all the time, cutting themselves off from the rest of the world. I hadn't thought that far, she said. Cowardice, I'm afraid. You were never a coward. We both were, Casper. He raised himself so that he was leaning on his elbow and looking down into her face. Don't look at me like that, darling, not when you know I'm speaking the truth. Help me to sit up and let me tell you what I've learned while I've been here. Casper slid off the bed and went round to his sister's side. He lifted her frail body gently so that her shoulders were against the pillows. He had to force himself not to wince when he touched her because there was nothing to her. The cancer had hollowed out her body until she was just the shell of the beautiful woman she had once been. Last night he had listened in horror to her acceptance that her life would soon be over. She had told him that she had everything arranged. When the time came, and she felt it was no longer fair to inflict herself on Rosewood Manor, she planned to go into a hospice. 
She wanted the minimum of fuss. Just this once, Casper, I shall behave myself. I intend to go gently into the night. He'd wanted to go on talking, but she hadn't had the strength and had fallen asleep. He tucked a blanket around her, then sat in the growing shadows as night fell, just staring at the face that had captivated so many men in her wildly extravagant life. Always unpredictable, always exhilarating, she had lived each day as it came, as though, as though it would be her last. When darkness had fallen, he had gone in search of Roland Hall. It was supper time and the rest of the inmates had their noses in the trough in the dining room, their voices bright as they chatted. He had experienced a surge of rage as they stuffed their faces while his sister endured untold pain. How is she? Hall had asked when Casper finally tracked him down. The man's mild tone had infuriated him and he turned on him savagely. Oh, she's fine. Bloody marvellous for a woman who's dying. Why the hell didn't you tell me? You must believe me when I say it wasn't what I wanted, but she made me promise not to. I had to respect her wishes. So why disrespect her wishes last night and phone me to say I should come? I thought it was time. He grabbed Hall by the shoulders. And who do you think you are making all these decisions, God Almighty? Still Hall didn't react. His calmness made Casper let go of him. He stepped back. I'll sue you. I'll sue the shite out of you. You've willfully let my sister go beyond help. You've as good as murdered her. I can assure you I've done no such thing. I only ever wanted the best for Damson. Perhaps when you're calmer we'll talk more. For now you must be hungry. I'll send something up on a tray for you both. Casper had gone back upstairs to Damson. She was still sleeping. He switched on the lamps and drew the curtains, wanting to block out the rest of the world. There was a knock at the door and a red-haired girl with a large tray stepped in. She placed it on the low table in front of Damson's wheelchair, then left without a word. Casper lifted the stainless steel domes from the plates and saw that the food had been labelled. For Damson there was a bowl of vegetable soup, and for him, poached salmon with a baked potato and a green salad. Pulling out the stops to impress him, no doubt. He woke Damson, and after she'd shaken off her drowsiness and swallowed a handful of tablets, they ate their supper. He tried not to notice how little of the soup she spooned into her mouth. No wonder she was so thin. You must stay the night, she said, when she pushed her tray away. I'll get Roland to organise a bed for you. There's a room next door that's free. Can't I sleep in here with you? I could manage in a chair. No, I disturb you. I sleep lightly at night and often read to pass the time. I could read to you, like old times. He nearly choked on his words. She shook her head. Not tonight. You need to rest. He was too dazed to argue with her. Under no other circumstances could he have imagined spending a night at Rosewood Manor but the world had found a new axis on which to spin and everything was sliding out of his grasp. Nothing felt real any more. Now, sitting on the bed with Damson nearly 24 hours later, the situation didn't feel any more real to Casper. But knowing he had no choice, he was beginning to resign himself to it. He had to accept that, before long, his sister would be dead. He listened now to what she had to say. I know you think Rosewood Manor is a ghastly place, full of the lost and insecure, she began. And you'd be right. 
People come here suffering from all sorts of problems. Executive burnout, failed marriages, abuse. Oh yes, I've heard heartbreaking life stories that would bring even you to your knees, Casper. What Roland has created here is an oasis of... She held up a hand. No, please don't interrupt. I don't have the energy. I wish you could see Roland for what he is. He's the most honourable and decent man I've ever met. He's helped me so much. There's nothing bogus about him, Casper. Truly, there isn't. But I've wondered from what I wanted to talk to you about. Her voice trailed away and she seemed caught up in her own thoughts, a long way from him. Slowly, she drifted back. She said, We need to discuss your future, Casper. It's hardly important to me now, Damson. She seemed not to hear him. Did you know that when there's not much future left, the past magnifies itself and becomes much clearer? She didn't wait for an answer, but continued. We need to talk about Mermaid House, about Dad and Jonah. I want you to promise me something. It won't be easy, but take it as a woman's dying wish. He swallowed hard. Didn't she realise how distressing it was for him to hear her speak like this? But then, as if sensing his pain, she touched his cheek. No hiding or running, Casper. We're beyond that now. Remember when we used to say, it's the two of us against the world? He nodded jerkily, remembering the first time she had ever uttered those words. It had been the night their mother died. He'd crept into Damson's room and stood at the side of her bed. I can't sleep, he had whispered. Without a word, she had pulled back the bedclothes and let him in. She had cradled him in her arms, already assuming the role of protector to him. It's just you and me now, Casper, she had said. You and me against the world. They had fallen asleep, and the following morning, with their lives changed irrevocably and unable to penetrate the wall that had sprung up around their father, they knew they could rely on no one but themselves. Casper, are you listening to me? I'm sorry, what did you say? I was saying we got it wrong. We should never have isolated ourselves as we did, or been so cruel to Jonah and Val. We treated her despicably. Casper felt his body tauten. He didn't want to think about Jonah or Val, the woman who had dared to try to replace their mother. A knock made them look up. The door opened and Hall poked his head round. Damson, the nurse is here to see you. Okay if I show her up? Of course, Roland. Casper, would you mind leaving me now, please? These nurses can be very thorough and I don't want you to see more of me than is necessary. Why don't you go for a walk? It's such a lovely day. But Casper didn't go for a walk. He shut himself in the room he'd been given last night and wondered how Damson could be aware of what the weather was like. Since his arrival, he had been oblivious to what was going on outside Rosewood Manor. Every thought revolved around the appalling knowledge that he would soon be without his beloved damson. Now he regretted every bad word he had ever spoken about the way she had recently chosen to live her life. He should have tried harder to understand what she was doing instead of condemning it. He had considered her weak and deluded, and he had never stopped to ask why she was doing this. It hurt that she hadn't turned to him when she knew she was ill, but it hurt more to know that, although they were together now, it was too late. With painful clarity, he realised that most of the derisive comments he had made about Rosewood Manor had been based on jealousy. 
it had been impossible to accept that his precious damson had chosen to be with a bunch of misfits rather than with him. He lay on the bed and stared up at the ceiling rose, tracing the circular pattern of leaves with his eyes. He remembered doing the same as a young child in the summer months when his bedroom was still light and he couldn't sleep. He could recall one particular occasion before their mother died. Anastasia had come in to kiss him goodnight before going out to a party. Dressed in an elegant evening dress that showed her shoulders, the fabric was silky soft and whispered as she moved. She had kissed his cheek and let him twist her lovely long hair around his fingers. Then Dad had come in and kissed him too. How happy he had felt, lying between them, so loved, so safe. And as Casper drifted off to sleep now, he was back in his old bed in Mermaid House. He was covered with a blanket of love. It reminded him that Damson hadn't been the only person he had truly loved. Before everything had gone wrong, he had loved his parents. Jonah took Clara's supper into her. She was sitting up in bed reading, which he took to be a positive sign. On a scale of one to ten, how are you feeling? he asked. From where he was standing, she looked a little better, less flushed and feverish. She lowered the book. Around four, she said, bordering on five. That's good. I hope you're well enough to eat this. He placed the tray on her lap. Scrambled eggs with smoked salmon and a glass of freshly squeezed orange juice. I trust everything's to Madam's liking. He shook out a white linen napkin with a flourish and offered it to her. She smiled. I could get used to this. He passed her a knife and fork. Eat it while it's hot. Yes, teacher. That's sir to you. Are you in the mood for some company or would you rather eat alone? Company would be fine. The house is quiet. Where is everyone? He positioned a chair in front of the open window and sat down. Dad's taken Ned to the stream. They've gone fishing with the most high-tech equipment they could find. A plastic sieve and a jam jar. How's the book going? Decided who the murderer is yet? She finished what was in her mouth. Two chapters to go and I think I have it in the bag. He smiled. When you've proved yourself right, do you want me to fetch another book for you? Please, if it's not too much trouble. Also, if you could bring me my mobile, I'd be grateful. Though, to be honest, I think it's high time I pulled myself together. I feel guilty about you and your father having to amuse Ned. Well, don't. Dad and I are quite happy to look after him. He's a great kid. I'm used to hulking great teenagers, so a four-year-old is a novelty. Not sure I like my son being described as a novelty, but I'll let you off if you tell me about the school where you work. Your father says it's full of hooligans. He started warily, but when he saw she was genuinely interested, he talked at length about the pupils at Dick High, his frustration with some of the other teachers and his hopes for the school. He even told her about Jace. I just hope the wind was blowing in the right direction for him when he sat the first history paper this week. He's never been given any encouragement before, and I want to prove a point to him and everyone else. She smiled. You're a real heart-on-your-sleeve crusader, aren't you? Thinking of the conversation he'd had recently with Barbara Lander from school, he recrossed his legs and frowned. I don't see it like that. And please, don't make me out to be a naive idealist. I'm not. I'm a determined, hard-working optimist. She drank her orange juice and looked at him thoughtfully. 
And would I be right in thinking that isn't the type of school you, Casper and Damson went to? More or less, but there are comparisons between Dick High and the first boarding school I attended. The number of demoralised teachers and the degree of bullying were certainly the same. I hated the place and spent most of my time planning my escape. But your brother loved it? Surprised at her insight, he laughed. It made Casper the man he is today. So what about you then? Tell me about the job you gave up to become a happy wanderer. It was the first conversation they had shared without his father as the focus, and because Jonah was curious to know more about Clara, he listened attentively to her husky voice, trying to read between the lines of what she was saying. When she had finished, he said with a touch of irony, And you don't miss all that? The money, the power, and the kudos of being a corporate high-flyer? I'd hardly describe myself as a high-flyer, but there are bits I miss. Mostly the camaraderie with some of the people I was close to. David and Guy were great colleagues, friends too. Must have been hard to juggle a demanding career with bringing up a child on your own. Clara laid her knife and fork together neatly on the plate. She wondered why Jonah was suddenly giving her the third degree, but then she realised she was overreacting, always on her guard to protect the identity of Ned's father. She was too sensitive to any question she thought might lead her to giving the game away. I've been extremely fortunate, she said carefully. My parents have been wonderful and helped out selflessly with Ned. And Ned's father, where where does he fit in? She looked up sharply. Nowhere. I'm sorry, he said hurriedly. I had no right to ask that. He got to his feet and took the tray from her. Ready for pudding now? No, thank you, she said stiffly. Then, I'm full. That was more than enough. It was delicious too. Thank you. Sure I can't tempt you with a strawberry meringue bought fresh from the baker this morning? She hesitated. Well, one meringue it is. Tea? Need you ask? While he was downstairs in the kitchen, Clara relaxed and stared through the window at Kinder Scout. Suddenly she wanted to be out there in the hills, to feel the wind on her skin, to breathe in the peaty smell of the moors. She was tired of being in bed with nothing to do but read or sleep which was why Joan had become such a comfort, she supposed. She was sorry that she'd just been so curt with him when she liked him so much. She thought of his enthusiasm for his job and envied him. When had she last felt like that about her work? He had reminded her of Todd's imminent visit to England, and it occurred to her that Jonah, who was a good listener, might be just the person with whom she could discuss the problem. He was so detached from her life back home that he would be a safe pair of ears. There was the added bonus that he could give her not just an objective opinion, but a considered male view. She waited for him to reappear. When he did, she said, Jonah, would you mind me using you as a sounding board? I've been used for far worse things, believe me. She sank her teeth into the meringue he'd just given her. Mm, heavenly, she murmured, after another mouthful. She said, now, what I'm about to tell you, you must promise never to discuss with anyone else. Leaning against the window ledge, he raised an eyebrow. Sounds intriguing. Do you promise? Hand on heart. You asked me earlier about Ned's father. I'm sorry I was a bit short with you, but back home, people know better than to press me on who he is. I've got rather used to shooting people down in flames if they get too close. 
Does that make me incredibly brave or very foolish? She smiled. Neither. Then she plunged in and told him about her relationship with Todd and its consequences, ending with, So what I want to know is, how would you feel if you were in Todd's shoes, if a secret like that had been kept from you? Jonah rubbed a hand over his jaw. He had wanted to know more about Clara, but this was way beyond anything he had expected her to share with him. Putting his surprise to one side, he tried to imagine how he would feel if Emily, whom he had loved and wanted to marry, turned up now with a child and announced that it was his. Shock would come first, then anger. Yes, he would definitely be angry that he had been kept in ignorance of something so important. But next would come acceptance and delight that he was a father. Looking steadily at Clara, he said, If I were in Todd's shoes, I would want to know the truth, no matter how complicated it might make my life. He pushed his hands into his trouser pockets. Does that help? She nodded. I think it's the conclusion I'd reached too, but I need someone else to confirm it for me. Thanks. Later, when his father and Ned had arrived back from the fishing expedition, Jonah remembered Clara had asked him to fetch her mobile phone. He had the key already in his pocket, so he went out to the camper van, thinking as he turned the key in the lock that when Clara was feeling better, he would invite her to have dinner with him. He had already suggested that he could take her and Ned on a walk to show them some of his favourite haunts, and she had accepted quite readily. But would the idea of dinner, just the two of them, go down so well? He let himself into the van and was just acknowledging how much he would enjoy an evening alone with Clara when he realised she hadn't given him any clue where her phone would be. He began hunting through the racks and overhead lockers. He found lots of maps and colouring books that belonged to Ned and a copy of Wuthering Heights, but no phone. There was one last cupboard, the one above the cooker. He opened it and peered inside. Moving aside a first aid kit and a lot of buff-coloured envelopes, he found the mobile and was about to let the door click shut when something caught his eye. He did a double take, thinking he must be imagining things. But he wasn't. He'd know those notebooks anywhere. He had seen Val with them hundreds of times, but had never let on to her that he knew she was keeping a journal. But since her death, and until this moment, he hadn't given the notebooks a thought. But what on earth were they doing in Clara's camper van? He sank down on the bench seat behind him, untied the ribbon and opened one of the books. He read the first page, the second, the third, and kept going, turning the pages and absorbing every painful word his stepmother had written. But with every instalment he took in, he was conscious that Clara had been there before him. So that was how she knew about Emily. Furious, he slapped the diaries together, tied them up, and wondered at her nerve. Chapter 49 By the time Clara was feeling better, May had slipped into June and summer had arrived. The weather was glorious, sunny and warm. The yellow gorse bushes scattered over the surrounding hills were ablaze with golden flowers and the sky held wisps of fresh white clouds. Everything seemed sharper, more intense. Although Clara's temperature was normal now and the racking cough little more than an occasional annoyance, she was still under orders from Gabriel to take it easy. To her amusement, Gabriel continued to fuss over her, 
insisting at every opportunity that she rest and build up her strength. He'd also stressed that there would be no talk of her and Ned moving on until he was convinced she was fully recovered. And be warned, he'd barked at her, I'll confiscate your keys if I detect any insubordination in the ranks, young lady. So behave and do as you're told. Now she was in the library doing some of her tapestry. Sitting in the bay window, where the sun shone warmly through the glass, she could hear the trill of birdsong, with the occasional bass note in the echoing call of a dove. Other than this, there was no other sound to be heard. Gabriel had taken Ned into Deaconsbridge to post some letters and to buy some cheese and ham and a loaf of bread for lunch. She knew, though, because she'd caught Gabriel whispering to Ned, that they would be gone for a while. They were planning to slip in a don't-tell-your-mother visit to the Mermaid Cafe for a clandestine sticky bun or two. Thick as thieves, the pair of them. Whatever adventures she had envisaged for Ned during this time away from home, acquiring a second grandfather had not featured, but that was exactly what had happened. Gabriel had won Ned's devotion. Ned had played his part too. He had befriended an old man nobody else had wanted. But that was children for you. They saw things the way they wanted to see them. And now that Gabriel, like her, was feeling so much better, she felt the time had come for her to give him Val's diaries. They contained the final truth he needed to confront and accept. She knew that when the time came for them to leave, she and Ned would always stay in touch with him, for a connection had been made between them. Once again she recalled what had led her to Mermaid House, and it all came down to Mermaid. Who would have thought that when her parents gave her that little bit of nonsense, it would lead her and Ned to Gabriel? It made her wonder if there really might be such a thing as fate. And if there was, what did it have in store for Ned in the foreseeable future? Was Todd about to make his appearance in his son's life? It seemed likely. From the moment she had received that email from Guy in Edinburgh, she had known that events were conspiring against her. Her conversation with Jonah had also flagged up what she had known already, that Todd had a right to know about Ned. But this didn't take away the fear. She was terrified of losing control of a situation at which she had worked so hard to stay on top. Despite what people thought of her, she did have moments of self-doubt. Not often and not over trivia, but with something as important as this, she needed to know that she was doing the right thing. And for the right reasons, which is why she had confided in Jonah. To her disappointment, there had been no sign of Jonah for some days now. The last time she had seen him was when she had told him about Ned's father. She missed his company, his thoughtfulness and quiet sense of humour. It had been nice having somebody of her own age to talk to. She put down her tapestry and looked out of the window. Who did she think she was kidding? Her enjoyment of Jonah's company went deeper than that. She would liked having an attractive man around. She hadn't experienced that in quite a while. And Jonah was, to use a Louisism, borderline gorgeous. He was patient and attentive with a sensitivity that one rarely came across in a man. Beneath it, though, she sensed a strong will and spirit. How else could he have survived his childhood and hung on to his sanity? She thought of the entries she had read in Val's diaries, the fight he'd got into at school, and she didn't doubt that, if sufficiently provoked, the mild-mannered Joan Liberty would come out fighting. So why had he disappeared? 
It was so unfair, just as she was feeling better and looking less like a bag lady, he was nowhere to be seen. She tidied away her tapestry and reached for Wuthering Heights. Perhaps it was reading of such passion unrequited love that was making her long for Jonah's quiet, responsive company. With this in mind, she decided to test herself. It was a game she and Louise had played late at night, when they were more than a little mellow. You had to close your eyes, picture a man you knew, and imagine kissing him. If the image made you cringe and squeal, you could safely assume that he had as much charm and sexual magnetism as a landfill site. But if... Well, the if was obvious. She sat back in the armchair, closed her eyes and conjured up the necessary scenario. A backdrop of rugged moorland against which she and Jonah were indulging in a slow, tentative kiss. However, before long it had developed into a walloping good, lip-smacking, heart-thumping, knee-buckling snog of monumental proportions. She snapped her eyes open, faintly embarrassed by such an enjoyable, erotic image. Archie let the door of the estate agent's office close slowly behind him. He had agreed to sell his home, or more correctly, his and Stella's home. It was practically a done deal, with no reason why contracts couldn't be exchanged within two months. It was all happening so fast. The for sale board had only gone up on Friday afternoon, but by Sunday three couples had viewed the house, and the first, who were planning to get married in the autumn, had offered him the full asking price. They weren't in a chain, and, as the estate agent had just said, they were a safe bet, as eager to buy as he was to sell. Except he wasn't eager to sell. It was his home, and he was parting with it reluctantly. He crossed the busy market square to go and view what might well become his new home, albeit a temporary one. It was a small, unfurnished flat above Joe Shalmodine's antiquarian bookshop, which he let on a strictly short-term basis. Nothing worse than to be stuck with a bad tenant, he had told Archie yesterday afternoon. Archie hadn't been able to view the flat then, because the carpets were being cleaned, but Joe had told him to come back today. It's not very big, he warned Archie now, as he handed him the keys, and the carpets haven't come up as clean as I'd hoped they would. It needs a lick of paint too. The entrance to the flat was via a gloomy alley at the side of the shop, and in the half-light Archie stepped cautiously round a wheelie bin, and an upturned rusting metal stool. He put the key in the lock and climbed the narrow stairs, determined to like what he found at the top. A lick of paint was an optimistic understatement. The walls of the sitting room were covered in dirty marks, and there were holes where pitcher hooks had once been. Chunks of plaster had come away from one wall, where there was clearly a damp problem, and the window that overlooked the square had two cracked panes. However, he told himself, as he stood in the middle of the room. It wasn't a bad size, and there was a working fireplace, which would make it nice and cosy in the winter. But the thought of winter depressed him. He saw himself celebrating Christmas alone here. The floorboards creaked as he moved through to the tiny kitchenette. It looked big enough to accommodate the cooker and fridge freezer he would bring with him, but there was no room for a table, or for all the crockery and glassware Stella had collected over the years, and which they had hardly used. But that wasn't a problem. She would probably take it. If she didn't, he'd sell it. The bedroom, like the kitchenette, overlooked what had been the backyard. Joe had turned it into an attractive courtyard. There were vines covering the white painted brick walls, some raised beds with flowers growing in them, 
and a wooden bench and table. He imagined Joe sitting there during a lull in the day, enjoying a glass of wine. There was an ominous smell in the bathroom, but the modern suite and shower over the bath appeared new and clean. He located the smell to the stained cork tiles around the toilet and wondered if Joe would object to him replacing them. It would do, he decided, returning to the sitting room and visualising it with his own furniture, until he had made some real decisions about what he was going to do permanently. Really, when all was said and done, compared to others, he was a lucky man. What's more, Shirley had offered to lend a hand with curtains and the like, stuff he was useless with. She'd even offered the decorating services of her son, Robbie. Not that I'm saying you can't manage yourself, she'd said. But it's time, isn't it? There's never enough of it. And when he had a bit more time on his hands, he ought to do something about thanking her for all her kindness. He stood at the window and stared down at the crowded market square. A car horn tooted, a door slammed. Over the weekend, the council had put up hanging baskets, as they did at this time every year, and the bright splashes of colour gave an added gaiety to the shop fronts. Everywhere he looked, the place was buzzing with people, cars and tourist buses. Now that it was June and visitors were pouring in, the place had a jolly, prosperous air. But by next month, it would feel the strain of so many visitors. The roads would be clogged and tempers would fray as people fought over too few parking spaces. He watched a dusty old Land Rover reverse into a space that looked perilously small. But the driver seemed to know what he was doing. Having accomplished the impossible, he got out and walked stiffly to the nearest pay and display machine. Archie recognised the tall, slightly stooping figure. It was the commandant from Mermaid House. He continued to watch the man as he returned to his vehicle. He put the sticker on the dashboard, then went round to the passenger door to let someone out. It was young Ned, Clara Costello's boy. After taking one last look around the flat, he locked the door and returned to the key. I'll have it, Joe, he said. OK, if I come back later to tie up the loose ends. Any time you want. By the way, I forgot to mention the floor tiles in the bathroom. I'll see to those for you. Out on the street, Archie saw the commandant with Ned again. They were crossing the road in the direction of the post office. Archie needed some stamps, so he decided to wander over and see if Ned remembered him. He caught up with them as the commandant was lifting Ned so that he could slip some letters inside the post box. When Ned saw him, he said, Look, Mr Liberty, it's Archie. Archie who? Archie smiled to himself. Trust the Commandant not to remember him. Hello there, Ned. What are you doing back here? With a tilt of his head, he added, Archie Merriman, Mr Liberty, Miss Costello's disreputable rag and bone man. Ah, yes, I remember you now. You came to the house a couple of times, didn't you? That's right. Mummy thinks we're only here to post some letters and buy some bread, Ned said importantly, but we're going to have a cake and a milkshake in the cafe as well. He leaned in close to say this last bit, as though it was a big secret. Well, aren't you the scallywag? And how is your mother? She's been very ill with flu and Mr Liberty has been looking after her. Do you want to come and have a cake with us? Archie laughed. I'd love to, but I've got to get back to the shop. Will you give your mother my best wishes when you get home? Tell her I hope she's soon feeling better. Ned nodded, then said, Have you got any more jigsaws in your shop? Mummy gave me a pound to buy myself something. A jigsaw would be nice. 
I liked the last one you gave me. As a matter of fact, I have got some more. Why don't you come and have a look? Can we, Mr Liberty? He looked up eagerly at the Commandant, who had been silent throughout this exchange. He said, I should think that could be arranged. Ned swivelled his head back to Archie. Do you have anything that Mummy might like? I wanted to buy her a present too. I'll have to think about that. You go and see Shirley in the cafe and I'll have a fossick and see what I can find for you. How does that sound? Archie walked back to second best, wondering what Clara might like. She had far too much taste and class to want anything from his tatty old shop. But then he remembered the teapot Samson had nearly smashed yesterday morning when he was emptying a box from a house clearance. It was a novelty teapot, with a pair of stumpy legs, an arm for a handle and another for the spout. He could easily get more than a pound for it, but Ned's pennies were good enough for him. Quickening his pace, he hoped no one had bought it while he'd been out. As he let himself into the shop and saw Samson with his feet up reading the paper, his mood was lighter than it had been when he'd gone out. He'd been miserable at having to go to the estate agent and accept the young couple's offer on his house. Now things didn't seem so bad. He'd found himself a decent flat that was cheap and conveniently handy. Okay, it wasn't anything special, but it would tide him over until he'd sorted himself out. If there's one thing he'd learned recently, it was that you never knew what was around the corner. Half an hour later, the irony of those words was brought home to him. The hospital phoned to say that his mother had just died. Chapter 50 With the house still empty and confident that she would be alone for some time yet, Clara decided to be brave. Well, brave-ish. Although she'd had her mobile phone with her since Saturday and had intended to ring her friends while she was housebound, she'd not got around to doing so for the simple reason that she had lacked the courage to set in motion the sequence of events she knew would unfold once she spoke to Louise. But now she was determined to grasp the nettle, to seize the bull by the horns, to seize... Oh, get on with it, she reprimanded herself. She tapped in Louise's work number, muttering that there was to be no more yellow-bellied prevaricating. It was time to see what Louise knew about the latest goings-on at Phoenix, specifically if the corporate wonder boys were over from the States yet. It made more sense to speak to one of the boys, but she was in the mood for a good old girly gossip with Louise. But Louise's voicemail informed her that she was out of the office for the next two days. Clara mentally tossed a coin. Guy or David? Guy won. She tapped his number and waited for him to pick up. Clara Bell, he said when he heard her voice. How's it going? She pictured him leaning back in his chair with his feet up on his desk. I'm fine. Well, not that fine. I'm recovering from a nuclear attack of flu. Poor you. But that explains why your voice is husky and sounds so dead sexy. So where are you now? Out of Mongolia? We're back in the Peak District. It's a long story, but do you remember we stayed with an eccentric man in a place called Mermaid House? Yes. Well, we're with him again. He's been fantastic in taking care of Ned while I've been flat on my back with... Clara Bell, please, you're shocking me. I told you before, your private life is your own. Guy Morell, the only thing that would shock your delicate ears is if Moira told you she was pregnant. Ooh, sharp as ever, 
So how's Ned? Still as cute as a button? Missing us all, I hope? Of course he is. He's grown. He's already gone through two pairs of shoes and is due for another haircut. My mother would claim it's all the fresh air he's getting. She might be right. Hey, and before I forget, you were right about that Todd Mason angel dude. The woman on the packing line had been drooling over him ever since he arrived. Clara tightened her grip on the small mobile phone, pressing it harder to her ear. You always did say I was a good judge of character, she said lightly. What's even more galling is that he's a nice bloke into the bargain. You've met him? Don't sound so surprised. Of course we have. David and I took him out for a drink. We discovered he was a keen squash player, and the next thing we knew we were being thrashed within an inch of our lives. But to get our own back, David invited him home for a typically English barbecue. The rain never stopped, and the poor bloke thought we were mad when we put the brollies up and carried on as though nothing was wrong. Clara couldn't believe what she was hearing. Her friends were socialising with Ned's father. The meddling hand of fate was up to its tricks again. Oh, and I mustn't forget, Guy carried on blithely. When he realised you were a close friend of ours, he sent his best wishes. I have to say, it strikes me that you were holding back on us, Clarabelle. We're getting the impression that you knew him a lot better than you've been letting on. He laughed and Clara wondered if he was fishing. But then a more worrying thought occurred to her. Guy, is your door shut or are you broadcasting this conversation to the whole of Phoenix? The door's shut but the phone's on monitor and I'm in the middle of a meeting. He must have heard her sharp intake of breath. Hey, I'm only joking, Clara. What is it? What's wrong? She kept her voice level. Nothing's wrong, silly. So, what else have you been up to with your newfound chum? Not a lot. In a way, we all feel sorry for him. He's obviously homesick. You know what these Yanks are like. No place like the old homestead. He got some photographs out of his wallet during the barbecue, showed his pictures of his wife and daughters, even phoned home while he was with us. A true blue-blooded family man, I guess. A rare breed. Clara couldn't take another word. Guy, are you sure your door's shut? Yes, I told you it was. Why? What's up? She took a deep breath and threw herself into the abyss. The thing is, Todd is Ned's father. There was a stunned silence. Then, gee whiz, girl, does he know? I mean, does Todd know about Ned? No, I never let on that I was pregnant. Another silence until, but Clara, he's seen pictures of you and Ned. It was her turn to fall silent. Filling the gap in the conversation, Guy said, It was late and we'd all had a bit to drink. Well, we had, he hadn't. He's practically teetotal, but, oh, Clara, don't be cross. We were in the kitchen and he was looking at the collection of photos David and Louise have on the wall. You know, that, that montage that Louise made. Clara knew it well. Quite apart from a range of silly pictures of her and the gang, there was a large picture of her with Ned slap bang in the middle of it. She had an arm round him while he puffed his cheeks with air, ready to blow out the four candles on his birthday cake. Go on, Guy, tell me the worst. He asked who the boy was, didn't he? And then he counted up the candles, I'll bet. He did. Guy's voice was miserable. Oh, well, that would do it. Did he say anything? I can't remember. It was one of those crazy moments when we were all doing something. Moira was making the coffee and David and I were sorting out the dishwasher and making our usual hash of it. We weren't taking much notice of him, to be honest. So it was Louise who was talking to him. Yes. Then I have to speak to her. I think she's away on a course in London, but she's home in the evenings. 
I know, I tried her office before ringing you. Well, I wish she'd been there. Then she would have been the one to get the grilling. Clara felt awful. Guy, I'm sorry. It's not your fault, it's mine. I don't understand why you didn't tell us. I... I couldn't. I thought the fewer people who knew, the less danger there was of Todd ever finding out. You don't think he had a right to know? Come on, Guy, you said it yourself. He's a family man. I couldn't rock the boat for him. He's not that committed if he had a fling with you. It wasn't a fling. She explained that when she had met Todd, he had thought his marriage was over. So, what will you do? She sighed heavily. I think I have to tell him, but I'm frightened of the consequences. I don't want to do anything that might jeopardise his marriage. And what about you? What about me? Do you still have feelings for him? How sweetly put, Guy. But if you're asking, am I still in love with him? The answer is no. Are you sure? Or is this why there's been no one since? From the little I know of the man, I'm under the impression he might be a hard act to follow. Don't give up on the day, Job Guy. You'd make a hopeless agony, aunt. You're wrong on all counts. Look, I'm going to have to go. I can hear a car. It must be Ned coming back with Mr Liberty. OK, but before you go, do I have your permission to tell the others so that we can be on our guard? And what do we do if Todd starts interrogating us? If he's guessed, and let's face it, he must have, he's probably going to want to know where you are and how he can see you. For now, tell him the truth, that I'm in the Peak District, but you don't know where. But don't let on to him that we've had this conversation. Play it as dumb as you can. You mean play it like a man, don't you? The wry laughter in his voice lifted Clara, and she said a hurried goodbye, then waited for Ned to come rushing in with Gabriel following behind. But Ned didn't come bursting into the room as she had anticipated. He ambled in, his face downcast. He came over to where she was sitting, climbed up onto her lap and said, I wanted to buy you a present, but I couldn't because when we went to Archie's shop it was closed. His mummy had died and he wasn't there. Hugging Ned to her, she got up from the sofa and went to find Gabriel so that he could elaborate on what Ned had told her. He was in the kitchen and while they put some lunch together, he explained how they had met Archie outside the post office and after they'd been into the Mermaid Cafe, they had popped along to Second Best to find Ned a jigsaw. The door was locked, Gabriel said, as he hacked at a wholemeal loaf and laid out the uneven slabs of bread on a plate. But because we knew he was expecting us, we knocked on it to get his attention. Anyway, someone else, a brute of a man, with few words at his disposal, came to the door and told us they were shut as a mark of respect. Apparently, Archie's mother had just died and he'd left for the hospital. Although Clara had met Bessie Merriman only once, and Gabriel not at all, lunch was a sombre affair. They both admitted that the faintest association with death tended to make one re-evaluate what was important. It made Clara realise that the sooner she talked to Todd about Ned, the happier she would feel. She also sensed that now wasn't the right time to hand over Val's diaries, not when Mr Liberty was so quiet and downcast. Across the table, Gabriel was thinking of what he'd done in Deaconsbridge that morning with Ned, when he'd posted a letter to Casper and another to Damson. He had written late last night asking his elder children to come and see him. He had something important to discuss with them. That night, when Ned was fast asleep and Gabriel had also gone to bed, Clara phoned Louise at home. 
Have you heard the news? she asked without preamble. Has Guy been beating those tom-toms? He has, but I'd guessed already, Clara. You had? Yes, whenever your name came up, I noticed that Todd showed a little too much control over his reaction. Then when I saw his face while he was looking at the photos of you and Ned, the penny dropped and I knew for sure. He went so pale, I thought he was going to faint. He excused himself and spent ages in the loo. He might even have been sick. He looked very green about the gills when he came back into the kitchen. Clara groaned. And the boys didn't reach the same conclusion? Oh, come on, you know the boys never reach any kind of conclusion on their own. So why didn't you put them in the picture? Because, Clara, my sweet, I'm not the ditzy blabbermouth you clearly have me down as. You could have confided in me, you know. I feel quite hurt that you didn't trust me. I'm sorry, it's just that once a secret is shared, it has a ripple effect that's impossible to contain. Forgive me, please. Done already. So, what happens next? Guy says you're going to come clean with Todd about Ned. Are you really? Yes, I am. I have to. Not that you've asked for my opinion, but I think you're right. The day was always going to come when you would have to be straight with Ned. You might just as well bite the bullet now, and from what I hear, this sell-off that Todd's over here for will soon be wrapped up, so you'd better get your act together. I'm assuming you want to do it face-to-face and not over the phone. You assume correctly. So, tell me about you and the lovely Todd Mason Angel. I must say, I'm pretty envious. He's very attractive. No wonder Ned turned out to be such a great-looking boy. It also explains why you haven't looked at another man since. Not you too. I had enough of that from Guy this afternoon. And for your information, I have looked at another man with lustful thoughts, quite recently too. Immediately, Clara regretted saying that. Strike that from the record, she said. I never said it. Not on your life. If there's a man up there and you have the hots for him, I need to know all about him. Give. Clara squirmed. There's absolutely nothing to tell. Thank you, but in view of how close to the chest you play it, I'll be the judge of that. Who is he and what's his name? Louise, this goes no further than you. Not a word to another living soul. Do you hear me? Loud and clear. Come on, I'm all agog. What's he like? Um, Tall, dark and handsome. Oh, please, spare me the cliché. But it's true. He is tall, he is dark and he is handsome. His name's Jonah and he's a history teacher and he's the same age as me. She told Louise how sweet he'd been while she'd been ill in bed. Hut, diggity, the man's a gem. I think he could be right. And talking of bed, is he a love machine between the sheets? Louise, keep it focused. It's exactly what I'm doing. I want you to promise you'll be careful. You got pregnant during your last away match and I don't want a repeat performance. Believe me, there's no danger of that happening. And if he's a love machine, I wouldn't know. What, no nookie? None at all? Louise sounded incredulous. Clara laughed. Certainly not. He doesn't even know I like him. Is he soft in the head? Oh, I get it. He's another married man, isn't he? For crying out loud, Clara, what is it with you? What a blast you are, Louise. Now, stop leaping to conclusions and pay attention. He's not married. He's pleasant to have around. And as every good celeb says, Jonah and I are just good friends. Hmm, but let's not forget those lustful thoughts you have for him, eh? Having made the fatal error of getting herself drawn into the conversation, Clara knew it was going to take real effort on her part to end it. 
Louise would be reluctant to let go of this one. She realised too, having heard herself openly discuss Jonah, that he was the first man since Todd who made her feel that he might be worth taking a risk for. On the landing, just the other side of Clara's door, and having been downstairs to make himself a drink, Gabriel considered what he'd overheard. Now, who'd have thought it? The lovely Clara carrying a torch for Jonah. Taking care where he placed his slippered feet on the wooden floorboards, he crept back to his bedroom. By jingo, he hoped Jonah had the sense to see what was right under his nose. Staring at the kitchen table, the last of Val's diaries now read, Jonah stared at his stepmother's final entry and wished that her life had been happier. She had deserved better than she had received from the Liberty family. She had tried so hard to pull them together and to make everything better for them. And what had they given her? Nothing but trouble, heartache and bitterness. Casper had always been particularly brutal. Don't think for one minute you can seduce us with a slice of homemade apple pie, he'd said to her one afternoon when they were sitting down for tea. You'll never replace our mother, so don't bother to try. How Val had coped and never lost her temper was a mystery to Jonah. She must have been angry at times, had to have been, but she'd never shown it, not once. He poured the last of the wine into his glass, then went and stood at the back door that opened onto the garden. Staring into the darkness, he considered the reasons behind his own anger, which had increased with each page he had read of Val's diaries. It was bad enough that Clara had read them, but it was worse that she had kept them from him. From his father, too. He didn't doubt that his father had no idea what she'd been up to behind his back. Draining his glass and feeling that he'd been taken for a fool, that Clara had derived some kind of perverse pleasure from stringing him along, he decided he would go to Mermaid House tomorrow morning and confront her. It would be interesting to see how she would justify her actions. Chapter 51 While she was hanging out a basket of washing in the warm sunshine, Clara congratulated herself on feeling better than ever that morning. She felt so good she was even humming a little tune, slightly off-key. She stopped, though, when she heard a car approaching. She continued to peg a row of Gabriel's shirts on the line until the car turned into the courtyard and she saw it was Jonah. In view of what she had admitted to Louise on the phone last night, she felt awkward suddenly at the prospect of talking to him. She watched him shut his car door and walk towards her. He was dressed, as he often was, in jeans with a loose-fitting cotton shirt, the sleeves rolled up. But there was something unusually purposeful about his step, which was curiously at odds with his appearance. It made Clara think he had come here with a specific task to complete, or perhaps he was just in a hurry. Hi, she said. Long time no see. We've missed you. I've been busy. How are you feeling? She pegged the last of the washing on the line. Murphy's law dictated it was a pair of her knickers and said, Much better, thanks to you and your father cosseting me and... Good, he cut in. Are you up to a walk? Something jarred with her in his unfamiliar clipped tone and it occurred to her that maybe he was nervous. Was it possible that he had reached the same conclusion about her as she had of him? I should think so. I'll go and get Ned. I thought we could go on our own. She bent down to pick up the empty washing basket and allowed herself a small smile that had a hint of yes tucked into it. It was to be a romantic stroll, just the two of them. 
Okay then, I'm game if you are. Shall we go inside and see if your father will agree to look after Ned? Gabriel greeted the suggestion with such enthusiasm that Clara was prepared to put money on it that he was in on the whole thing. Perhaps, and in view of their newfound relationship, Jonah had confided in his father. Quite all right by me, Gabriel said, putting an arm round Ned and ruffling his hair. You go off and enjoy yourselves. Ned and I will be fine, won't we, lad? And then to Jonah, but be careful. Mind you don't go too far and tie her out. After she'd swapped her slip-on shoes for a pair of trainers, they set off in an easterly direction across the fields. They climbed over a wooden stile that had been built into the dry stone wall, and soon Mermaid House was far behind them. They were alone, surrounded by a patchwork of lush green slopes. Filled with a lightness of heart she hadn't felt in a long while, Clara felt sorry for anyone who didn't have the opportunity to experience such a golden summer's day. It was what her mother would call a grateful day, a day to be glad one was alive. In the distance, sheep bleated, and overhead she heard the call of a bird she didn't recognise. What's that, Jonah? she asked. It's a skylark, he responded, without interest. Puzzled at his terseness, she decided that he was one of those people who preferred to take his nature walks in peace and quiet. They walked on, the path rising steeply, the sun warm on their backs. She tried not to steal too many sideways glances at him, but found her gaze drawn irresistibly to his face. It was set as if he was deep in thought. There was no sign of a smile, or that he was enjoying himself. They crossed a tumbling stream, and in front of them Clara saw a gathering of large rocks. She opened her mouth to suggest that they rest a while, but before she could speak, Jonah said, I expect you're tired. Let's sit here. Glad of the opportunity to catch her breath and grateful for his intuitive consideration, she chose a comfortable-looking stone on which to sit, one that was large enough to accommodate the two of them. But he remained standing, his back to her, his hands thrust into his trouser pockets as he stared at the view. A soft breeze blew at his hair, rippled his shirt, and Clara had to fight back the urge to reach out and touch him. Irrationally, she wanted him to turn and kiss her. I used to come up here on my own when I was a child, he said, turning slowly to face her. In fact, it's one of my favourite places, where I like to come and think. His expression was serious and made her want to touch him even more. Kiss me, she willed him. One kiss to make me feel young and wild again. One divinely long-drawn-out kiss, and I'll never trouble you again. How about it? But you know that, don't you? She stared at his sexy mouth, not listening to his words, but taking in the soft curve of his lips and how they might feel pressed against hers. Like you know that this is where my brother clinched matters with Emily, just as you know all about my family. Suddenly she saw that the beguiling softness was gone from his mouth and a feeling of sick dread swept through her. Jonah, what is it? But she knew what was wrong, knew it with painful and shameful clarity. He stared down at her, his eyes dark and hard. I'm talking about Val's diaries. I found them among your things in your camper van while I was looking for your mobile. There was no point in denying it. I, I was going to put them back, she confessed, accepting that while she had to give him the truth, it would not lessen the seriousness of her crime. She lowered her gaze. She had nearly made a fool of herself. 
Jonah hadn't brought her up here for a passionate smooch, as she had hoped, but to take her to task. Oh, how stupid and misguided she had been. So, you admit you took them? He was towering over her, blocking out the sun and everything around her, everything but his simmering contempt. She nodded. I'm sorry. It was awful of me, I know. But it was when I started sorting through Val's things, I started reading them and was fascinated by what she... You took them and read them, he said sharply, as though she hadn't spoken. Despite their intensely private nature, you felt you had a right to read them. What Val wrote was private. She never intended a stranger to read them. A lying stranger at that. They were meant for my father, no one else. His voice was cold and stinging, utterly condemning. He was every inch the tough adversary she'd imagined him to be, if sufficiently provoked. But he hadn't finished. What gave you the right to do that, he persisted. It was wrong of me, she murmured, and I'm sorry, but it was why I came back to Mermaid House. I forgot I still had them, and when I'd got to the end, when I read Val's last entry, I knew I had to give them to your father. I'd been waiting for the right moment. He turned away from her. Perhaps it would have been better if he hadn't come back. She let this last comment sink in, then realised she couldn't let it go, and with her humiliation and meekness subsiding, she said, If I hadn't come back when I did, your father might have gone through with what he'd intended to do down in the copse. He swung round. If you're going to take that line of argument, I could say that if you'd never come here in the first place, my father would never have got so depressed. Clara was getting angry. She didn't like illogical arguments, and this one was heading that way. Oh, please, enough of the self-righteous fest, Jonah. If it wasn't for me, you and your father would still be carrying on like a couple of bickering children. She saw she'd hit home, and oh boy, he looked as mad as hell. Don't you dare denigrate what my father and I have been through in so offhand a manner, he thundered. She leapt to her feet, stood just inches from him. Time to bring the truth trolley round. What bothers you most about me reading those diaries? Could it be something to do with the fact that I know more about you than any other living person? That I know your weaknesses as well as your strengths? That you ran away from school all those times because you were so desperately unhappy? That you've never stood up to your brother because deep down you're scared of him? Oh, I think it's all of that and more, but what probably irks you most is what we both know. That if you had kicked Casper into touch years ago, you would have married the woman you loved and be standing here with her. Instead, you're stuck with me, a lying stranger. Which begs the question, who do you despise more, me or yourself? For a moment, she thought she'd gone too far. His face turned white and his eyes took on a wild, shining darkness that made her step back from him. His body was taut with barely concealed rage. I'm sorry, she said, I shouldn't have. But she got no further. He stepped in close, pulled her to him and kissed her. She resisted at first, unnerved by the rough and suddenness of what he was doing. But then the desire she'd felt for him earlier came flooding back and she relaxed into him and let herself be kissed. And before long, the dreamy, knee-buckling kiss she'd fantasised about was a thrilling reality. His arms held her tightly and she pressed her hands into his shoulders, wanting to feel the warmth and strength of his body through the soft fabric of his shirt, wanting to absorb every bit of him. But, annoyingly, the need to cough got the better of her desire. I'm sorry, she said, releasing herself from his embrace. 
I hope I'm no longer infectious. He waited for her to finish coughing, then circling her waist with his hands, drew her gently back to him. What you said a moment ago about Emily, you're wrong. I'd much rather be standing here with you. He smiled hesitantly, his handsome face now devoid of all animosity. May I kiss you again, but this time without the threat of world war breaking out? And when I've done that, it might be a good idea for us to talk. So much soul-searching has been going on. Gabriel and Damson have both acknowledged how badly they have behaved, how many others they have hurt along the way, and especially themselves, and both have reached out for the forgiveness of those they've wronged. Clara and Jonah spend some time together. She asks his opinion about telling Todd about Ned, and he confirms what she'd already decided. She needs to tell him. Jonah finds Val's diaries in Winnie and is understandably furious with Clara. They have a heated argument, which ends in them both realising that they're beginning to care for each other and ends with a passionate kiss. Casper is devastated to find Damson has ovarian cancer and is in the last stage of her life. And in her usual motherly way, she tries to help him prepare for her leaving. Join us next time for the concluding episode of Precious Time by Erica James. Thanks for listening. Thank you.